Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. I do want to remind you to make sure you never miss an episode by following the podcast using your favorite podcast software, including Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or the Apple Podcast app. A reminder, as you're making your travel plans, remember johnnydollarair.com. johnnydollarair.com is our Priceline affiliate link. Part of the purchase price goes to support the great detectives of old-time radio at no additional cost to you, so remember to check johnnydollarair.com first. All right, well, we are getting into the final of the John Lund Johnny Dollar episodes that are in circulation. And as I said, this was one we did not have for you when we went through the series last time. So it's another previously uncirculated episode. The original air date, August the 10th, 1954, and the title is The Sarah Martin Matter. The listening's fine from 7 till 9 on WBBM. Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum. The refreshing, delicious treat that gives you chewing enjoyment presents for your listening enjoyment, John Lund as... Johnny Dollar. Ed Reynolds, Johnny. Like to do me a personal favor? Well, if I can, sure. What is it? Fly out to Milwaukee and see what's going on with Joe Martin, our branch manager there. Why? What's wrong with him? That's what we'd like to know. Up until a year ago, he was the best man we ever had. Since then, his business has gone to pot. There are suspected shortages on his accounts. He's separated from his wife. Everything's going wrong. It sounds like he needs a combination psychiatrist and accountant. Well, I'd agree with you, except for one thing, Johnny. I talked to him on the phone last night. He said his wife was trying to kill him. Okay, I'll give Martin your regards, Ed. <laughs> makers of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum bring you John Lund in a transcribed adventure of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Friends, the makers of Wrigley's Spearmint Gum present these weekly adventures of Johnny Dollar because they know that millions of you enjoy Johnny Dollar. That's true of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum, too. It's enjoyed by millions, day in and day out. People find that chewing on a smooth, delicious piece of Wrigley's Spearmint Gum somehow makes the time pass more pleasantly. Whether you're working, driving, shopping, or just taking things easy, that good, tasty chewing gives you enjoyment and satisfaction. So always keep a package of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum handy. And whenever you want a refreshing, delicious treat, chew a stick. You'll like it. You really will. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Home Office, Washingtonian Life Insurance Company, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Sarah Martin matter. 
Expense account item one, $63.15. Airfare and incidentals between Hartford and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Flight 207 for Kansas City and Los Angeles, now loading at gate C. I was making my way through the terminal toward the taxi stand, intending to go straight to your offices and have a talk with Joe Martin, when my plan suffered a slight setback. Well, Mr. Johnny Dollar, please report to the dispatcher's office. Mr. Johnny Dollar, report to the dispatcher's office, please. Somebody here looking for Johnny Dollar? Yes, I am, Mr. Dollar. Lieutenant Hanks, Milwaukee Police Department. I'm glad to know you, Lieutenant. What's on your mind? I've been in touch with the home office of Washingtonian Life. They told me you were on your way out here to see Joe Martin. Yeah, that's right. Why? Well, you got here a little late. He's been murdered. On our way out to the Whitefish Bay area, where Joe Martin had had his home, Lieutenant Hanks filled me in on what they'd found. Preliminary medical examination indicates he was killed last night, somewhere between 8 o'clock and midnight. They talked with our home office sometime last night. Yeah, that's what gave us the 8 o'clock figure. Oh. Call was put through shortly before then. Our medical examiner will pin it down more closely when he gets through posting, Martin. Yeah. How was he killed, Lieutenant? Gunshots. Once in the chest, once in the right side of the throat. Bullets, 32 caliber, no sign of the weapon. Either one of the shots would have been instantaneously fatal. Makes it homicide without a question of a doubt. Yeah. I left Hartford only a couple of hours ago, Lieutenant. How does it happen that we had no word about this? Well, the body was only discovered less than an hour ago. Who found him? His stepdaughter, Hazel Martin. Oh, it's almost noon now. If Martin was killed between 8 and midnight last night, it... Took an awful long time to find out about it. Well, she doesn't live here. Hasn't since before Martin and his wife separated almost a year ago. He's been living alone. Well, then what was she doing there this morning? Yeah, this is Murray Avenue. The house is right up ahead there. I'd just assume she'd repeat the story to you herself. Give me a chance to pick up any possible discrepancies, hmm? Yeah, sure. There's one thing she said, though, that I think's kind of interesting. Yeah, what's that, Lieutenant? She swears her mother killed him. Joseph Martin had been killed in a walnut-paneled library just off the living room. After we checked with the lab men to ascertain that no further physical evidence had turned up, we went to a sunroom in the rear of the house where Hazel Martin was waiting for us. As I told Lieutenant Hanks earlier, Mr. Dollar, the discovery of my stepfather's death was purely accidental. I had no intention originally of visiting here this morning. What changed your mind, Miss Martin? I work for the Bostonian department store downtown as the shopper's guide and furnishings consultant. One of our customers requested I drop out to give her some advice concerning interior decorating. And she lives in the neighborhood here. And on my way out, I decided to drop in and say hello to my stepfather. What happened when you got here? The door was closed. There was no answer to my ring. Some kind of hunch caused me to go inside anyway. That was when I found him. You have a key to the house? Yes. But you don't live here. No, I haven't for some time. I wanted to return the key to Joseph, but he insisted that I keep it. He said he wanted me always to consider this as my home. I see. When was the last time you saw your stepfather alive, Miss Martin? Approximately two months ago. He was changing his insurance policies, naming me as his beneficiary rather than my mother. How much insurance was involved? $65,000. Well, what did your mother think of that? 
She made no protest, much to my surprise. Why to your surprise? My mother happens to be a very grasping, greedy woman. Money means everything to her. Uh, you told me you think your mother killed uh, Joseph Martin. That's right, Lieutenant. If she wasn't going to gain financially, what was her motive? Simply because she hated him. After all, she tried to kill him once before. How was that? There was a fire in the house, a gas explosion. It happened shortly after they'd separated. Yes, our arson squad thinks the meter had been tampered with. Gas leaking from it into a live pilot light caused the explosion. Well, I still don't see where Mrs. Martin entered the case. She'd visited my stepfather earlier that evening, Mr. Dollar, discussing the terms of their separation. The explosion occurred some four hours after she left him. Mm-hmm. Lovely situation to find in one's family, isn't it, Mr. Dollar? Your stepfather dead, your mother a murderess. Oh, I can't say that you seem very emotionally upset about it, Miss Martin. Well, frankly, I'm not. My stepfather was a nice man, but we were never too close. And I can't ever remember the time when there was any love between my mother and me. So you see, there's no reason for me to be emotionally involved. Yeah, I see. And uh, now if there's no reason for my being detained any longer, I'd like to get back to my work. Yes, yes, of course, Miss Martin. Well, there was nothing else I could do at Joseph Martin's home, so I went back downtown in one of the squad cars and checked into the Schrader Hotel. I called your local office to inform them I was in town and where I was staying. Then I went down to the main dining room for lunch. I was in the middle of lunch when I was called to the telephone. Mr. Dollar, could you possibly meet me at the Eugene restaurant in the Hotel Juno within half an hour? Well, that depends on who you are and what you want to see me about. I'm Sarah Martin. Joseph's widow. And if you'll meet me there alone without informing the police, I believe I can give you some very pertinent information concerning his death. I'll be there. Expense account item two, fifty dollars Rental of a Ford convertible. That transaction, plus the drive to the Juno Hotel, occupied exactly a half hour. The head waiter escorted me to Mrs. Martin's table. How nice of you to be so prompt, Mr. Dollar. Sit down, please. Thanks, I will. Won't you have something, Mr. Dollar? Oh, I'll just have a cup of coffee while you tell me how you knew about me, where I was staying, and uh, what you know about Joseph Martin's death. Well, it's really quite simple, Mr. Dollar. I've been uh, spending the summer at Lake Geneva, and I came into town today to do some shopping, and I thought I'd call Joseph's office to say hello. Well, that might explain how you knew he was dead, but it uh, doesn't account for the rest of it. Well, the switchboard girl told me what had happened to poor Joseph and and about your being in town. I thought it might be advisable to get in touch with you first before making contact with the police. Well, then you do intend to call the police. But of course. Was there any question in your mind about that possibility? Oh, I didn't know. Then let me dispel any doubts, Mr. Dollar. As soon as our conversation is over... You may take me to the police yourself, if you wish. Well, that should give your attorney time enough to be down there with a writ. If he isn't, he won't be my attorney much longer. Just why do you think you'll need him? Joseph and I had been estranged for over a year, Mr. Dollar. We'd had some bitter quarrels. And I've also made some enemies among Joseph's friends and relatives. It's only natural that because of the unfortunate circumstances surrounding his death... 
some suspicion might fall upon me. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, suppose you let me hear what you wanted to tell me. I merely wish to establish my alibi with you. Well, then you have one? Of course. Would you care to hear it? Well, I have nothing more important to do at the moment. <laughs> You're so kind. As it happens, I was in Lake Geneva last night. I had dinner at the Rainbow Inn around eight, and then went to the Rivoli Theater. I saw a double feature. Afterwards, I returned to the Rainbow for coffee and then went home. That's a pretty full schedule for the night. I thought so. Anyone with you? No, but the, um, the waitress at the Rainbow can verify my presence there, as can the manager of the theater. I left my gloves under the seat and asked him personally to find them for me. Oh, very neat. Yes, isn't it? Well, it seems if your alibi stands up that your daughter was wrong. Hazel? Uh, what about her? Well, she happens to have accused you of Martin's murder. She's a, a rather unusual child, Mr. Dollar. That's all you have to say? Tell me, was, uh, was Joseph shot by a thirty-two caliber revolver by any chance? Why do you ask? Hazel became interested in target shooting some years ago. She used to practice with an ivory-handled thirty-two caliber Smith & Wesson. That's very interesting. Is it really? <laughs> How nice. Well, when I finish, we can go to police headquarters. That sounds like a reasonable procedure. After Mrs. Martin's leisurely lunch, I drove her down to police headquarters. Her attorney was there on schedule, and after she'd repeated her story to Lieutenant Hanks, the attorney wasted no time in whisking her away. There doesn't seem to be too much to go on there, Dollar. No, not if her alibi checks out. The Geneva police will have a report for us in a couple of hours. What about that thirty-two caliber Smith & Wesson? We'll run it down. Uh-huh. Well, I better get over to Washingtonian's local office and see what I can pick up there. That might not be a bad idea. I'll keep in touch, Lieutenant. Right, Dollar. I beg your pardon, but my name is Novell. Everett J. Novell. Uh, do you happen to be a, a police officer? No, but uh, there are plenty around. What department did you want? Why, the uh, homicide department, I imagine. I, I want to tell them about a murder. Oh, is that so, Mr. Novell? Yes, the one involving that insurance man, that Mr. Joseph Martin. Why, do you know something about it? Oh, yes. Yes, indeed I do, but then I should, you see. After all, I'm the man who killed him. Friends, to feel cool and fresh on a hot summer day, it's important to keep your mouth and throat cool and refreshed. That's one reason it's a good idea to keep refreshing Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum handy. You can chew a stick of Wrigley's Spearmint Gum just about any time and any place. The lively, full-bodied flavor cools your mouth, and the pleasant chewing helps to keep your throat moist, gives you long-lasting refreshment. Chew Wrigley Spearmint Gum often, every day, as millions do. By keeping your mouth and throat fresh, it'll help to keep you feeling cooler and more comfortable. And 
And now, with our star, John Lund, we bring you the second act of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. I led Everett J. Norvell back into Lieutenant Hank's office. At the end of some ten minutes of questioning... Norvell's original simple statement had grown to somewhat formidable proportions. And just when did the struggle take place, Mr. Norvell? Why, when Mr. Martin refused to give me any money, and I knew he had it. I used to work for him, you see, insurance salesman. I knew he was wealthy. Mm -hmm. Well, and when he tried to run out of the room, well, that's when the fight started. This uh, all took place in the living room, Mr. Norvell? Yes, yes, that's right, Mr. Dollar, in the living room. Oh, it was a terrific struggle. Just terrific. I, I may be rather small, but I am pretty wiry for my size. Uh, yes, I'm pretty wiry. Yes, I can see. Uh, and then uh, you pulled the knife, did you, Mr. Novell? A knife? Oh, yes, of course, the knife. Yes, that's when I pulled out my knife. Yeah, that's when I stabbed him to death. Yeah. Mm, well, thanks very much for your cooperation, Mr. Novell. <laughs> well, are you going to... Uh... Uh, book me now, if that's the term. Book me book me on a charge of murder. Yeah, I'll have one of the boys take care of you. You just come this way. Yes, yes, of course. And in a case of this kind, a murder and all, well, I presume there'll be uh, reporters present and... Uh, yeah, well, don't, uh, photographers don't worry too. about a thing, Mr. Norvell. Okay. Everything will be taken care of. <clears throat> Sergeant James, will you take care of Mr. Norvell, please? See that he's given a nice, comfortable spot in the tank. I'll tell you what to do with him later. Oh, that's wonderful, Lieutenant. Yes, wonderful. Thank you. I do want to cleanse my soul, you know. Having committed such a crime, I, I would like to have the newspapers and the photographers. I'd like to have them know all about it. Yeah, well, don't you worry about a thing, Mr. Norvell. Well, that's that. Yeah. Another confessing Sam. If it didn't clutter up our work so much, you'd feel sorry for people like him. Lonely, depressed. Trying to get a share of the spotlight for even a minute. I've heard some people say that a policeman doesn't have a heart, Lieutenant. Yeah, well, as I said, we've no time to worry about him. Somebody killed Martin, and we've got to find out who did it. Well, I started for the insurance office before Everett Norvell's little dream bubble burst. Maybe I can break some real ones around there. Expense account item three, a hundred dollars. Fee paid to two certified public accountants for a day's work going over Joseph Martin's books. While they went to work, I had a talk with his private secretary and general assistant, a Miss Esther Buckwald. As I told that police officer, Mr. Dollar, that Lieutenant Hanks, I believe I knew Mr. Martin as well as anyone, having worked for him here for almost 18 years. Yes, that's why I'd like to talk to you about him, Miss Buckwald. I don't know that I can tell you any more than I told the lieutenant... Mr. Martin was always a scrupulously honest, very fair-minded and decent man. The only thing I can say against him is that he was an emotional fool. You're talking about his marriage. I am. For a decent, self-respecting man like that to become involved with those two women. Grasping harpies is what they were, Mr. Dollar. Both of them. Money, money, money. That's all they want out of life. And all they wanted out of Martin? Of course it was. And he was just generous enough, just weak enough to give it to them. Then uh, there's nothing you know of in the business here, any uh, enemies that Mr. Martin may have had that could provide a motive for his murder. Of course there wasn't. 
Mr. Martin didn't have an enemy in the world. He was a wonderful insurance man and a wonderful person. I think it's a shame that a man like that, such a sweet, generous, wonderful man, should have been... should have been... Well, it's nice to know that somebody misses him, Miss Buckwell. Excuse me, please. Sure. Washingtonian life. Miss Buckwell speaking. Yes, he's right here. Just a moment, please. It's for you, Mr. Dollar. Oh, thanks. This is Johnny Dollar. Lieutenant Hanks, Dollar. How'd you like to take a ride out to Lake Geneva with me? Why, is something doing out there? Yeah, a fire at Mrs. Martin's summer house. Don't know if it has any connection or not, but it might prove interesting. I'll meet you out in front. Mrs. Martin's summer home was a two-story frame and shingle house fronting the lake. The fire was out by the time we got there, and the exterior didn't seem too badly damaged. But Deputy Fire Chief Waldron led us back into the kitchen, where we found a different story. Here's where she started, all right. Doesn't seem much doubt about it, does it? Now, what caused the explosion, Chief? Gas? That's the way I figure it. Look over here. Got a gas heater here in the kitchen. Take a look at that valve. Ah, turn to the open position. Sure didn't need any heat going on a day like this. Temperature was 73 degrees at 8 this morning. So the gas heater valve was open, either deliberately or accidentally. No other way to figure it. Gas started accumulating here. Hot water heater's right over there with a pilot light on. Soon as enough gas accumulated, up she went. Open area like this, it'd take a while for enough gas to reach the explosive stage. Yeah, it gives Mrs. Martin a pretty neat alibi if she was after insurance money. She must have just been leaving headquarters when this thing went off. Got something else to show you, too. Over here. Take a look at what's lying on that pile of rubbish. Uh-huh. Pretty interesting. The revolver was a 32 caliber ivory-handled Smith & Wesson. Before returning to Milwaukee, Lieutenant Hanks sent out a pickup for Mrs. Martin, and we went over her alibis again. But they still checked out. Back at headquarters, a rush comparison on the gun was made at ballistics, and the numbers checked through firearms registration. The results looked fairly conclusive. Well, there's your answer, Dollar. It's the gun that killed Martin. Uh-huh. Who's it registered to? Joseph Martin himself. Bought it in February of 48. No question about it being available to his wife. Uh-huh. Or to his stepdaughter, Hazel. Wasn't anything I could do around headquarters until Mrs. Sarah Martin was picked up and her alibi broken. So I dropped around to your offices to see how the CPAs were doing. So far, they were doing great. They'd already uncovered enough premium and policy loan juggling in the books to indicate a shortage in excess of $20,000. began to look as though the opinion of Martin's secretary, Esther Buckwald, as to his honesty and integrity was a little bit prejudiced. Miss Buckwald had left for the day, and there was no answer at her home phone. I had better luck with the second call. Expense account item four, $7.30. Drinks and sandwiches at the Schrader Bar for Hazel Martin and myself. So you don't think my mother killed Joseph Martin, Mr. Dollar? I didn't say that. 
Oh, then it's my reason for accusing her that you question. Well, I'd say it was a pretty unnatural act for a daughter. There's not much love lost between us. Yeah, so I've gathered. What I'm interested in is uh, why. My reasons may be of interest to a psychoanalyst, Mr. Dollar, but hardly to you. Well, I'm not so sure. You might have had a very practical reason. To focus attention on someone else rather than yourself. A logical supposition, maybe, but an impossible one to prove. That might depend on what the police are able to learn about the gun. What gun? An ivory-handled thirty-two caliber Smith & Wesson. That sounds like Joseph's gun. Yeah, it was. It was also the murder weapon. What's its connection with me? You've had access to it. Not for three years, I haven't. No, why not? That's when Joseph gave the gun away. Gave it to whom? Have you met his secretary yet? Esther Buckwall. Did he give the gun to her? No, to a boyfriend of hers who saw it once and admired it. What was his name, Miss Martin? Everett J. Norvell. He used to work for Joseph as an agent. Well, too bad you didn't learn that a little earlier, Dollar. Norvell was released from the tank about 20 minutes ago. Let's go out and see Esther Buckwall. Pick you up in five minutes. Wasn't Everett's fault alone? I'm just as much to blame as he was. It wasn't his fault alone. Why did he kill Martin, Miss Buckwald? Was it because of the juggling of accounts at the office? Yes. Everett had started that when he was an agent. After he left, I kept it up for him so the shortages wouldn't be discovered. Then he couldn't get a job. He needed money. So you took more, is that it? And then Mr. Martin found out? Yes, the day before yesterday. I was panic-stricken. I didn't know what to do. When I called Everett, he... He said not to worry. He'd take care of everything. Yeah, I guess Everett did. Uh, what about that fire out at Lake Geneva, Miss Bookwald? I didn't know about that, not until afterwards. I, I guess Everett thought that he could throw suspicion on Mrs. Martin by setting it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Smuckwald, do you mind telling me one thing more? What's that, Mr. Dollar? Why? Why? Well, a woman like you, honest, decent, respectable. You've held a responsible position with Washingtonian life for 18 years. Why, Miss Buckwald? You say those words like they should mean something to me, Mr. Dollar. Don't they? I'll be 47 my next birthday. I'm an unattractive old maid. Until three years ago, no man had ever given me a second look. Do you know what that can do to a woman? Growing old, drying up, life passing her by, no family, no one to love. No one to be loved by. And then Everett came along and said he loved me. Maybe he was lying, I don't know. But he was kind and gentle and tender toward me. And he said he loved me. Do you know what that can mean to a woman like me? Do you? Well, I, I think you've given me some idea. Everett J. Norvell walked into the police stakeout a few minutes later. 
There was no trouble with him then, and I doubt that the jury will have any later. His second confession was much more complete and to the point. Expense account item five, $33.10. Hotel bill and miscellaneous. Expense account item six, $64.50. Airfare back to Hartford. Expense account total, $318.05. Remarks. Apparently, the only honest person involved in the case was Joseph Martin himself. Unfortunately, he was the only one I didn't get to meet. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Friends, one of the reasons it's a good idea to chew Wrigley's Spearmint Gum often is that it satisfies you without being rich or filling. There's lots of delicious, long-lasting flavor in a stick of Wrigley's Spearmint Gum. Real taste enjoyment. And besides, you get enjoyment from the pleasant chewing. It gives you a nice little lift and helps tide you over till mealtime. Helps keep your mouth moist, your taste fresh, too. So do what millions do. Keep Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum handy and enjoy it every day. It tastes so good, lasts so long, and gives you real chewing enjoyment. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, brought to you by Wrigley Spearmint Chewing Gum, stars John Lund in the title role and was written by Sidney Marshall with music by Eddie Dunstetter. Featured in tonight's cast were Jay Novello, John McIntyre, Howard McNear, Virginia Gregg, Mary Jane Croft, Gene Cagney, and Lou Merrill. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, is produced and directed by Jaime Del Valle. <laughs> The makers of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum hope you enjoyed tonight's story of Johnny Dollar and that you're enjoying delicious Wrigley's Spearmint Gum every day. This is Charles Lyon inviting you to join us again when, from Hollywood, John Lund again transcribes his expense account as... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Western Adventure and Music with Gene Autry, Sunday evenings on the CBS Radio Network. Welcome back. Well, this episode wouldn't be one of my favorites, but it's still an absolutely solidly written and acted piece with an engaging mystery and an interesting cast of characters. And you once again see this sort of contrast as Johnny being a decent guy dealing with a sordid situation and that sort of sad last reflection that the only honest person was the guy who was murdered. Now, the fake confession by Norval was something where nobody was quite on the ball. Norval 
was foolish to make it as it brought him to the attention of the police. But the police probably should have considered whether the possibility that this was a dodge meant to throw them off the track. Because I didn't get the impression that this was a prominent murder and confessing Sam's tend to gravitate more towards those. Plus, he admitted to being a former employee. Still, that wasn't like a super unrealistic mistake. It was just a mistake. The motive in this case is interesting. Esther fell for this guy because of loneliness. And if you recall a few months back, there was another episode where an insurance adjuster friend of Johnny's also started stealing money because he had been lonely and a beautiful woman made him feel attractive so he was willing to throw away an entire career. And I think they're tapping into an idea of loneliness as this sort of problem. And we have a lot of scholarship on the whole question of loneliness and how it's made a lot of changes to society over the past few decades. But programs like this point to the idea that this has been a growing problem for some time. As there was a trend that was ongoing of people moving to urban areas from the country. There were people who their parents or grandparents had been part of a close-knit community, a small town where they were known and part of that. And roots might go back two or three generations. And even if you lived in an urban area, there were many neighborhoods which were also communities. I think there was already some fragmenting going on. And if you're living in those uh, communities, it may be a disappointment for you if you don't get married. But if you're totally disconnected, then it's a situation of becoming desperately lonely. Though certainly many folks, even if they're surrounded by community, can get into a bad, ill-advised relationship because, you know, they still have those romantic longings. But I think it's much worse if you're just totally disconnected. Now, it's also tempting to conclude the episode is sane because she described herself as unattractive that the whole issue of loneliness is only a concern for people who are not attractive. Or at least that's the message. Uh, one thing to keep in mind, and the, the way that I view it on a radio program, is if we're objectively told that a character is particularly scarred or has some major deformity, then it's an objective issue. However, if a character describes herself or himself as particularly unattractive, that probably reflects their own personal opinion of themselves rather than objective fact, which to them can be quite real, but is not objective reality. If you watch 1950s television, particularly the sort of game-slash-audience participation shows like You Bet Your Life or People Are Funny, you'll see a lot of people who are average or maybe even, in your opinion, below average, who are married and happy. 
character's statement, as I said, doesn't reflect reality. It reflects their opinion of themselves and their overall attitude. And I think that, tragically, that sort of insecurity, in many cases, sets them up to be drawn into this sort of thing. So it's an interesting phenomena, and I, I do like the way that Johnny Dollar addresses it. Wow, what a cast. Now we turn to listener comments and feedback, and we start out with a comment from Ronser regarding uh, the Jan Brugel matter, uh, and this one comes from YouTube. He writes, talk about a masterpiece. Wow, what a cast. And uh, he elaborates, I mean, Johnny, Chester, Doc, Rocky, and The Shadow, not to mention Virginia Gregg. Now, that cast included Howard McNear and Harley Bear, a.k.a. Doc Adams and Chester from Gunsmoke, William Johnstone, who played The Shadow, and Jack Moyles, who played Rocky Jordan. And I think it's fair to say that in terms of character acting, CBS really had an embarrassment of riches available to it. Helped in part by the decline of radio dramas on other networks, they really could get very talented character actors in. Now, I also will say that I think these character actors were a lot more appreciated by fans of the Golden Age of Radio in later decades than they were at the time. At the time, they were just what the British would call jobbing actors. They're just doing their work and trying to get in as many radio performances as possible. And your casual radio listener listening in the 1940s or 50s wouldn't think much about it. But the folks who started collecting old-time radio and really getting into it and listening to old programs began to get an idea of the scope of what they did. The number of characters and performances that folks really appreciated what they did. And those who lived like into the 1970s and 1980s, many of them went to old-time radio conventions and were just given the star treatment. You know, they were part of panels. They did big interviews. That's not something that anyone would believe would have happened, but it did when people were just able to reflect on the breadth of their accomplishments. Well, now it's time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. Even though it is the first Friday in February, we don't have anyone who's... A been supporting the show five years this month. So we'll have quite a few coming up uh, next month. So today we're going to go ahead and we'll thank Haskell. Haskell's been one of our Patreon supporters since August 2015, currently supporting the show at the Shamus level of $4 or more per month. Thanks so much for your support, Haskell. And that will actually do it for today. Join us back here next Tuesday for Michael Piper, Private Detective. And next Friday, we'll be bringing you the Gerald Moore pilot for Johnny Dollar. But listen in tomorrow for Tales of the Texas Rangers, where... Mr. Mather? Yes? I'm Ranger Pearson. This is Ranger Morgan. You feel up to answering a few questions? Uh, go ahead. Would you tell us exactly what happened? <clears throat> well, I... I went to the barn and fixed some harness and heard something 
around back and went around to look. What was it, Mr. Mather? A soldier trying to start my car. I got a thirty-two Rio. Parked it around there. It was He was trying to steal it. And what'd you do? Well, I yelled at him and told him to get out of there. And ran over to pull him out. He, he jumped out on me and knocked me around. I, I fell down and he kicked me here in, in the head. What'd he look like? He, he had an army uniform on. Blood on it. Face marked up like, like, like he's been fighting. Was he a big fellow, Mr. Mather? Well, he... Better than average size, black hair. Texas boy, way he talked. I'd known him again if I saw him. Remember anything about his uniform, shoulder patch, anything like that? A patch? Yeah, usually wear him just off the left shoulder. It tells what outfit he's with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I do remember. It was a, a kind of a, a kind of a bell and a, and a firecracker going crossways in, in front of it. It's the 903rd Infantry Division, Jason. Mm-hmm. Their camp's located over in the east part of the state. That narrows it down some. Yeah, could be any one of 15,000 men. I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to Box13 at GreatDetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram. Instagram.com slash GreatDetectives from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.